0: Welcome to The Trail Ahead, conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, and culture. We're your hosts, Faith and Addie.
1: We ring on folks from all walks of life to have real, authentic, messy dialogue that can lead to tangible change. Every time
2: I speak from a space of utter humility and letting heart kind of do and say what it's gonna say, it's never been a wrong thing to do. And actually it's opened doors. And that actually has been what's propelled me through my career in a lot of cases. And I think I've gotten to this point of silence is worse than being fired. And it would haunt me more if I saw an injustice or if I experienced an injustice and didn't say something than getting fired for maybe speaking the truth.
1: Our guest this week is Whitney Clapper. Whitney leads global environmental activism marketing at Patagonia one of the presenting sponsors of the Trail Ahead podcast. She is a leader, activist, and changemaker, as well as a multi-sport athlete, storyteller, and fierce friend.
0: I first met Whitney while working on the film tour for a documentary called Jumbo Wild. I've looked up to her ever since. In this episode, we talk to Whitney about her work inside and outside Patagonia and the different shapes her activism takes from day to day. One of which is replacing a typical bio on her LinkedIn profile with a list of beliefs and causes she stands for. We also touch on an idea that I have carried with me during this past year in particular. Speak the truth, even if your voice shakes. A note to listeners, this interview contains a description of a disturbing racist incident. I am
2: Whitney Connor Clapper. I go by she, her, hers pronouns. I am currently and have been really for the duration of COVID been home, which is on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, specifically the Venturino and Barbarino band of Chumash. I am a Patagonia employee and work closely as the environmental and activism marketer.
1: What Patagonia did in I believe it was in the beginning of 2020, but saying like, we're no longer in the business of selling clothing. We're in the business of saving the planet. How did that happen? Like, how does a brand do that? And how does that directly relate to your job and interesting title? I
2: don't even know what my real title is. We went through this practice at Patagonia where we were supposed to like come up with like unconventional titles. It was an HR exercise. And I really tried to Push forward unicorn wrangler, but but they didn't want me to (laughs) judge myself that. Um, But I kind of like that's kind of what I feel like I do sometimes. So, technically, you know, as the environmental marketer, you know, it's working very closely with our Enviro campaigns team, and they are a team that is really focused on environmental issues. And that spans the gamut. There are probably 30 plus different environmental topics at any given time that we are tracking. And some are obviously bigger than others. And oftentimes they ebb and flow based on president and political, you know, whatever is kind of in the political landscape and the news and that sort of thing. So it's It's everything from broad climate to Arctic, Bears Ears, all of the different rollbacks. Whenever we want to have more of a public-facing moment, that's where I come in as their marketer. I think one of the things I actually really appreciate and love about being the enviro and and activism marketer is that I don't have to speak to an audience that's going to fit a product right? So it opens up doors for me in ways that it just doesn't for our product teams at this point. And so as a result, I'm never going to put a paid plan together to speak to our core audience, right? Like the core audience is core because they tune into everything and they show up to events and we don't have to extend, you know, special invites necessarily to them. And so quite often where I'm trying to go is much more of who are those people that have never set foot in a Patagonia store. Who are those people that maybe also care about the Arctic, but maybe don't even own a piece of Patagonia clothing or much less any sort of item from the outdoor industry? And I'm always really fascinated at trying to meet those new people. It's kind of a newer tactic, I think, for Patagonia in some cases where it's not that I don't care and love about our core audience, but like that's not my focus. My focus is new
1: how Like, how does a brand kind of do that? I mean, I don't necessarily think that people would necessarily expect, like, listening to you right now, they might think that you work at an environmental conservation group.
2: The way it works for Patagonia and the way the, you know, the mission statement that we had had for 30 plus years kind of changed overnight is we're still privately owned. And so the owners, the Chenards asked for us to change the mission statement to we're in business to save the home planet. And it was really due to the fact of the planet is burning up and the urgency of really needing to figure out how to be better about all of our different actions, knowing full well that business is dirty. But there is this balance and it's a balance we kind of talk about every single day is, oh, yeah, we're actually a clothing company. Or are we an activist company, you know, and what voice is louder and it ebbs and flows, whether it were a clothing company or a an activist company? And I think we're finding that balance of how can you do both.
0: What was your experience like being in a large, very recognizable brand during the Black Lives Matter uprisings of this summer?
2: The thing that surprised me and didn't surprise me at the same time was that it felt like, for whatever reason, Patagonia finally had to pay attention. And I think the thing that surprised me is that why did it have to take all of these uprising, deaths, fear, hatred, pain, struggling, I mean, human lives lost for us to pay attention. At the same time, I'm not surprised because It has not been a world that has really been forced upon a basically white privileged brand. And Patagonia is not unique, you know, in the outdoor industry to probably going through similar emotions. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest where, you know, my neighbor down the street, I remember going over to his house one day and... He literally had hung a black cabbage patch kid in his garage and was like beating it. And it was horrifying to me because two miles the other way, down my street was this small liberal arts college where my dad was an English professor and that's why we lived in this community as he had gotten this job and it was an international I mean we had people from all over the world at this small little school. and so I grew up in this space of all different races, all different cultures. My dad constantly had students to our house, but then the rest of the community outside of this college, it was really conservative. It was horrifically racist. You know, it was the St. Louis area, and there's a lot of crime and violence and redlining. I mean, like all of this is what I kind of grew up with, and that led me into more of wanting to do more with sociology, cultural anthropology, and just wanting to get to know people and cultures. And early on, I had to kind of have racial conversations. I guess I share that because I just had a different experience coming into the outdoor industry and recognizing that there's a very different, I'm not trying to say very different experience, but not everyone had that chance, you know, or had that space to grow up in. Not everyone had to confront race at Patagonia and and outdoor industry until this summer, which is where it's like, I'm surprised that that is actually the case. And I'm not surprised at the same time. I think what I struggled with a lot was also this, for the five years I've been in this role, I had been trying And I'm not the only one. I shouldn't say me as in, you know, I'm not I'm definitely not the only one asking these questions. But I had been trying to do a lot of asking the harder questions of our HR, of my bosses. You know, we recognized the need for systemic change well before this summer. So why did it take so long for us to act? We've had plenty of different conversations around privilege and constantly being asked why we don't have a very diverse ambassador list, let alone employee. None of these questions are necessarily new. So why did it have to take this summer for us to actually look at it and figure out what to do about it? And so I think that was the hardest part for me where I feel like there's so much we could have done and I wish we had done prior to the summer. And a lot of that comes down to just not feeling heard. When I asked these questions, I oftentimes felt kind of like a mosquito in the room. I've been told I'm too passionate. I've been told to sit down and do my job and not make a scene, but it doesn't work for me.
0: I loved this quote from you where you said, it wasn't until I entered the corporate world that I really began to comprehend that my voice matters. You've also said that You've equated the experience of using your voice to it being a full body experience. We also know that you use your social platforms, every platform, like your LinkedIn is amazing. So excited to see all these incredible messages that you've put out into the world. What is that experience like for you? What does using your voice mean to you? And why has it become so important to do so in the work that you do?
2: I think the answer... I mean, kind of probably has to start back a little bit in childhood and just, again, in the crazy community I lived in where it was racism, you know, out one door, but this like liberal arts global college out the other door. I grew up with really with parents who, I mean, my dad was an English professor, but quite often stood up for students and stood up for the rights of those that were quote-unquote lesser than, and I witnessed that quite often. And it, it wasn't this like needing to have a voice heard. It was literally because he felt like he needed to. It was almost like all of a sudden you just find yourself saying something and doing something versus like plotting it out, right? It was that sort of sensation that I witnessed from him. And then similar from my mom, I mean, we recycled before recycling was cool. We made clothes and kind of worn-weared clothes before it was cool. And it was one of those things where I learned a lot from witnessing that. I think because I had kind of them as an example, it wasn't until I lost my mom in 99 and my dad in 03. And I was kind of on my own as I like entered corporate world and as I entered my professional space that I kind of had to discover that I too had this kind of like inner voice that I found myself doing things that weren't necessarily what I, you know, quote unquote, like air quotes should do to be a good employee or a good woman or whatever. I would do it because all of a sudden I was just doing it because I couldn't not. And I think what really cemented this need to use voice was seeing quote from oh gosh i'm not remembering her name speak the truth even if if your voice shakes and i have been in many conversations where i have felt like my entire like being shake but i've still said whatever it is i need to say
0: i just want to go back to your linkedin <laughs> for a second because... It's really impacted us, with Addie and I <laughs> I, read, I read it out loud. I read it out loud to Faith as we were cooking last night. It was amazing. <laughs> and we were like, wait, everyone
1: needs to stop Pause. what they're doing, go to Winnie Clapper's LinkedIn and understand how space can be used in different ways. Can you mm. talk about how and when you came to be like, you know what I actually want to say and I'm going to say here? Like, how did that come to be? <laughs>
2: god I don't even remember I mean I think I just I mean LinkedIn's a funny thing right where any given day I might be looking for a new job but I'm not really looking for a new job but I've always kind of kept it updated and I think at one point someone had asked me for a review or you know testimonial whatever the hell they're called on LinkedIn that like led me to their profile which then of course you go down this rabbit hole because you get the like you know, on the side of LinkedIn where like other people viewed these people. It's like the YouTube shows of like, you should watch this, right? And, you know, next thing you know, you've seen on these other people's profiles. And then, then I went back to mine and I was like, this just feels like wrote and kind of dull and not actually representative. And I also realized I hadn't really updated it since, I mean, years ago. I just remember having this moment of like, I'm going to put this on my, pr- like, this is what comes to me to say. And this is going to be a better slice of who may want to work with me, or who not. Like if they can kind of respond to some of the things I put in here, versus like whatever the list of like accolades you have, you know, over the years. This is going to be more telling of maybe who sends me notes. And I think just by default of being a Patagonia employee, like I get people every day. It feels like asking for jobs at Patagonia, or you know, wanting to learn more and. So I, I guess I, it was partly also somewhat selfish, where I was like, I don't want to spend my time just answering random LinkedIn requests. Like if you really want to talk to me about something I care about, like, now you know what I want to talk about or don't want to talk about. I don't need the small talk. I need the real talk.
0: listeners
1: fun fact this week our partners at trail butter want you to experience the yum that is their product Addie and i are huge fans our favorite is the maple sea salt almond butter try it out with a 20 percent discount for any purchase over 20 bucks by going on their website and entering the promo code trail ahead
0: faith i have to admit the patagonia strider shorts are my new favorite and this time, I got these because you always wear them and I was jealous. So now I think we're even.
1: It's true. I love these shorts. The elastic band makes them a comfy fit and the little pocket in the back is perfect for a phone or some snacks. And so far,
0: no chafing, which is a very real thing for me. Oh, so real. They're also so light, they're Fair trade certified sewn, and made with a mix of recycled materials. Where have you been running these days? I've been staying close to home, checking out back alleys and
1: nearby trails that I hadn't explored before the pandemic. And I'm really glad it's warm enough for shorts again.
0: Totally. Patagonia, in the business of saving our home planet and making the best trail running shorts ever. Okay, Faith, what is the Merrill Hydro mock? I've started to see them popping up all over Instagram could try to answer that
1: question, but I think it makes more sense to ask one of the coolest people I know, a staple of the New York City-run community, Jeb Helato. So I got the scoop from him. Oh, uh, love them. In the summertime, in the woods a lot. Like, I go camping, I can, like, hang out at the lake, and they just seem like the perfect shoe because they're ventilated and they're waterproof. Like, I just did that 50K. Probably, like, the last 10 miles, I was like, oh, I just can't wait to get these shoes up back on there, just so like, I can let them breathe and recover. You heard it from the source, an NYC sneakerhead, marathoner, ultra runner, and one of the most stylish people I know. Thanks, Jeb. The Merrill Mach. Walk, don't run, to get you a pair.
0: When we say playing outside, what does that make you think of? Where do you go?
2: I think early, early 2000s when I joined outdoor industry, it was about being in these pristine kind of remote locations doing your sport. And it was about different waves that you are surfing and did you get barreled, right? Was the wave over the top of you and were you riding it at the same time versus Thinking about whose land you might be on or thinking about the privilege that comes from being able to go to these pristine, remote locations, that was just not a part of the conversation early on in my experience by any means. And I feel like a lot of that has shifted and there's much more of an awareness and awakening that's coming to the industry as a whole, which is good to see.
1: I wanted to ask you about the Gwich Inn. I've had the extreme privilege of going up and visiting both Vinatai and Arctic Village, which are two Gwich'in villages near the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And I'd love if you could talk a little about maybe for someone who has never heard about the Gwich'in and have never heard about the porcupine caribou herd or the the drilling in the coastal plain, could you kind of like give us a sense of the conversation there and what your personal relationship has been to
2: The Gwich'in are, to me, some of the most resilient Native people that I have ever interacted with. And that's probably a pretty silly statement in some cases, (laughs) because Lord knows there has been resilience from all sorts of different Native nations. But thinking about, one, just the remoteness of the Arctic and the fact, to your point, that very few people will ever visit the Arctic refuge versus maybe, you know, some of the communities that are in the lower 48 of the U.S. I feel like the remoteness makes it a taller order in some cases. And the work that the Gwich'in have been doing for decades against big oil, I mean, a small community against big oil is absolutely no joke. And it is totally David and Goliath. And then you add in State leaders and senators and representatives who also call out what a wasteland the Arctic is, a few of their words, a few of their words that have significant change in sway in DC. And these are their state representatives and leaders who don't actually even recognize the Gwich'in as people. And they are the original people of these lands. And so they have been fighting to keep their way of life forever. And it's one of those where if you think about the conditions of living in Arctic, even Fairbanks, Alaska in general, it is so far from continental U.S. And gallons of milk cost upwards to 13 bucks a gallon type of thing. Fruit is not grown. I mean, there are so many things that we kind of take for granted and can go to the grocery store and get in a heartbeat. And it's just either very hard or extremely costly for them to survive without their dependency on the porcupine caribou herd which is their lifeblood it is their sustenance and the proposed drilling sites and where many of the drilling locations already are is directly in line of the migration route of the porcupine caribou herd And so it's not just a question of migrational routes changing. It's a question of their calving lands, their birthing lands of the caribou are all in jeopardy. And it's all for big oil. It's just not long-term sustainable thinking. And so there's so many reasons why we of Patagonia have been in this fight for decades And it's a similar fight for Navajo Nation. I mean, there's so many places where it's similar fights. It's pipelines, it's oil, it's big industry, and it's all kind of short-term thinking and short-term gain. And this is a 40-plus year fight. So can you imagine like permanent protection of the Arctic would be so significant. And just the start for many other locations to experience the same sort of thing. And then our hope, fingers crossed, is that You know, Deb Holland can also help step in as Secretary of the Interior and continue to not only further support Quichin and Arctic Indigenous, but so many of our other Native partners that are also struggling in the fights with extractive industries and big oil on their sacred
0: lands. You are also an activist yourself apart from the brand you work at. And I think uh, it's also clear through different social platforms, different messaging you've put out into the world, unapologetically so, that you are telling us that we need to be learning from Indigenous communities. I wondered if you could speak more to that and sort of the ideologies you've seen and are now kind of sharing with the world through your platforms. What do we need to be immediately paying attention to and adopting and learning from these Amazing Indigenous leaders and communities that you work with.
2: I'm perpetually amazed at how many long time, you know, Indigenous practices that we're trying to actually go back to now, whether we know it or not. And quite often, what I'm finding is that we're going back to original practices and like renaming it. So it looks like it's kind of this new thing when actually (laughs) it's not, I mean, regenerative organic is the perfect example of that, right? Like that's kind of a splashy new name, but if you really look at the way our indigenous native friends cared for the land it is exactly that it's nurturing and caring for the land it's no till it's no synthetics it's no you know synthetic fertilizers it's it's all these things that actually you know if you stop and just kind of pause to think about what the land may need and think for a moment that the land may actually have answers for us the waters if you listen might actually have answers for us instead of us feeling like we need to dominate and own and till and mold and you know it is exactly how it was and so I think that there are so many examples, you know, it's soil maintenance, it's care for the land, you know, public lands, the relationship there, it is fire management, you know, there are so many stories of being able to track colonization through how forests and and trees were managed and being able to kind of know that history of like when people were moved off certain lands based on fire history and how forests are now overgrown. And let's just call it what it is and recognize what it is that we have a lot to learn from some of these different ancestors. And I think even, even in the care and treatment of one another, I had the chance to be at one of the Gwich'in gatherings and there was definitely, you know, animosity between different tribal members and there, you know, there's decades of conflicts within the Gwich'in. And I remember witnessing different Gwich'in leaders take the time to listen to one another, even when they were in brutal conflict with one another, take the time to listen, to pause, to just take quiet moments as they were gathering thoughts. I mean, it was one of these moments where I thought, God damn it, I wish if I could even learn how to do that in a meeting, you know, let alone in conflict with someone else. Like that was true kind of wisdom and teaching for me. So I feel like there's countless moments and stories and situations where I just continuously feel like we are trying to go back to how it was done pre-colonization. Really, I guess the lesson is I hope we can acknowledge what we're doing and call it what it is. Let's just (laughs) kind of figure out how we can honor Indigenous ways and learn from and move forward. I guess the only other thing I would say on that too is, you know, in this public lands journey that Patagonia has been on, and Faith, I'm curious, you know, your perspective on this land, but one of the things I've also loved about indigenous relationship with land is that it it is exactly that it's relationship with it's honoring of it's not ownership. It's not their land versus our land, right? It's not our land. It's not your land. There isn't a possession when it comes to nature from indigenous ways. And I've always so appreciated that because This sense of dominance, this sense of performative action to possess, I feel like we're missing. We're missing the mark and we're spending a lot of energy missing the mark when we actually could be in unity and harmony in relationship a lot more with land, waters, people, all of the above.
1: What you're saying resonates a lot with me and it feels like we're in a conflict with the systems that we've created. And so we still have to work within these systems as we try to create pathways that bring us back to Indigenous practices. I think, especially when I was in grad school, I was working on a project about Native American cultural appropriation and fashion, and I was trying to not be touchy-feely about it. And so I was like, I'm going to talk about the economic repercussions of this. I'm going to talk about what it means to be taking money out of native communities. And that's what you're doing when you buy these knockoffs and all this stuff. And I did the first cut of it. And after, you know, watching it, I realized that I had really done an injustice by not talking about spirit and not talking about their relationships with the land. And I was so worried that they would come off as being too touchy feely. And yet all of the people in my film who were all Native creators and First Nation artists, that was a part of them and it was a part of who they were. And so I really started to try to go back and really listen differently and realize like I don't have to feel like I'm gonna be too touchy-feely if I talk about the spirit of the land, I talk about listening to what the earth is telling me. I guess just to say that for me, like calling myself a conservationist, talking about being a public land owner is still into the conceit that land can be owned in order to work within the systems and the laws and the policies that we have set up and in order to try to advocate in that way. That said, I know that even, you know, saying I'm a public land owner is also flawed.
2: I mean, I guess I don't have a totally formulated thought. It's more of, I also don't, for me, it's not also worth shaming I have plenty of friends that wear the public landowner t-shirts, and it personally it always makes me cringe, <laughs> you know. And it always makes me like, oh, I, I kind of hope you know what that really means. But I also, I guess, I feel like I am trying to be better about how do we keep ourselves curious to want to ask the questions. I mean, I feel like so many of these different issues, and I, I feel it at Patagonia too. It's like there has to be a vulnerableness for us to really kind of learn through all of these different social norms, narratives, you know, whatever it may be that we are kind of growing up and, and living in and, and to move beyond that. And I hope that people start to feel more comfortable in the uncomfortableness of just asking the questions to people that maybe they wouldn't normally ask the questions to, and that those people then can feel Absolutely comfortable responding however they want to because they might be exhausted from answering certain questions, and that's totally legitimate. But how do we stay curious to be better, do better, learn more? And that's, I guess, a hope I have for myself, but you know, for Patagonia for Outdoor Industry as well. And I guess I hope that we can. We can become more open to hearing and wanting to ask the questions to help open and broaden those different perspectives so that we can kind of evolve in a way to be more human and real.
1: Thank you, Whitney, for your openness and inspiration. We both had so much fun in that conversation.
0: To learn more about Whitney, you can follow her at outlive.the.bastards on Instagram or at Whitney C. Clapper on Twitter. Also, we highly suggest checking out her LinkedIn. It's one of the best we've ever seen. For more ways to get involved, you can visit patagonia.com slash actionworks. We'll provide additional links on our website, thislanddoc.com slash ahead. The Trail Ahead is created and hosted by us, Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. It's produced by Lentigua Williams & Co. Jen Chien is our editor. Elizabeth Nakano is our producer. Sound design and theme music by Cedric Wilson. Our podcast art is by Shar Tuyesua.
1: Check her out on Instagram at Aloha. Special thanks to our amazing teams from Merrill. Adam Kepfer, Lauren King, Will Prey, and from Patagonia. Bianca Bada,
0: Sasha Tennedy, Claire Gallagher, and Whitney Clapper. Big thanks also to Trail Butter and Outdoorsy. And thanks to our team on the visual side, Tyler Wilkinson-Ray, Fred Goris, and Monica Medellin. Thank you for listening and for spreading the word. Follow the trail ahead on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next episode.